Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. In many popular accounts of contemporary quote-unquote Western society, there is an inherent contradiction between the principles underlying liberal secularism and Islam. This type of binary discourse about religion and secular naturalizes these differences and promotes the seeming rigidity of the two categories. But secularism is much messier than that. Danielle Hawk questions this simplistic narrative in her new book, Interrogating Secularism, Race and Religion in Arab Transnational Art and Literature, published with Syracuse University Press in 2019. She deconstructs liberal accounts of secularism through an examination of the work of authors and artists from ethnic and religious minorities. The literary and visual economies that inform their art demonstrates that secular values are not always neatly distinguished from religious principles, nor are spiritual forms necessarily steeped in tradition. In our conversation, we discuss secular ideologies, contemporary Orientalism, the racialization of Muslims, the war on terror, state surveillance, visual and literary cultural production, transnational identities, publishing norms, museum practices, human rights discourses, Muslim feminist praxis, and LGBTQ identities. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Danielle Hawk about interrogating secularism, race and religion in Arab transnational art and literature. Welcome, Danielle, to New Books in Islamic Studies. Thanks for, for joining me. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this this really interesting book, Interrogating Secularism. But before we get into that, we always like to know a little bit about our authors, what brought them to their subjects, and how they approach them. So can you tell us a little bit about your training, perhaps influences or mentors or moments that kind of shaped the trajectory that your work has taken shape? Absolutely. Um, I have been interested in religion and literature uh, my entire life. I was raised in a very religious family. Uh, As an undergraduate, I even wrote my senior thesis on medieval Sufi poetry. And I went on to do a master's in divinity. I wrote about theology and U.S. literature. And so I went into my Ph.D. program at Cornell thinking about religion and literature and knowing that's what I wanted to work on. And in 2008, I took a trip to Switzerland to visit American friends that were living there. And this was when the Swiss government was holding a referendum on banning minarets. I don't know if you remember that happening. And in the town I was visiting, a right-wing group had put up all these signs supporting this ban. And they had all these posters. And on the posters, there was a woman in a cob. She was sort of swathed in black cloth. And there was a Swiss flag with minarets shaped like missiles 
kind of coming up out of the flag and she and the the missile minarets sort of mimicked each other. And it was this obvious gendered threat to Swiss values and to feminism. And none of this surprised me. The referendum didn't surprise me, the posters, but my friends' reactions to it really did surprise me because they said, oh, isn't it great we have religious freedom in America. This could never happen in the United States. We would never ban minarets. And this happened after the Patriot Act, after Guantanamo Bay, after the protests about the proposed Islamic Center near the World Trade Center, after NYPD was spying on Muslims. Um, And so in the U.S., I think we hear about this value of religious freedom and secular governance a lot, even though the U.S. has oppressed its religious minorities from its very beginning. So from native genocide to um, colonial era anti-Catholic laws to 19th century massacres of Mormons, um, the U.S. uses religious freedom to oppress other populations. This week, two Supreme Court justices spoke about overturning marriage rights in the name of religious freedom. So this faith that they had in religious freedom and how it was such a different context from Switzerland really surprised me. And so this is what got me thinking about secularism in the United States. And my my one of my dissertation advisors sort of steered me towards reading about secularism and theories about secularism. And I came to the conclusion that the solution to this is not less racist or less homophobic secular governance because Western secularism is foundationally designed to be exclusionary. And I think in a lot of fields, um, so for example, if you're in the fields of Middle East, North African, or Islamic studies, the question of why talk about secularism is really evident. So an example being the Swiss banning of minarets or the French banning religious symbols and burkini bans and Quebec secularism laws and the fact that even in the United States, um, since 2010, we have had over 200 anti-Sharia law bills introduced in 43 states. So the, the, the question of why secularism in a lot of fields is evident. In literary studies, I think maybe it is less so. So the arguments that I make are maybe less evident. Um, but what I came to think about this in my reading about secularism is that if we can talk about secularism in the way that we talk about religion as embodied, as something we practice, then our cultural production, like literature and visual arts, must also reflect and shape that embodiment. And so in reading about secularism in literature, I was reading a lot of scholars that showed how canonical literature and its various genres So things like the coming of age story um, or the buildings Roman, they naturalize what are Protestant values into civic ones. So scholars like Tracy Fessenden start this work by, by looking at the Puritans. She works her way up through the 20th century. And what she and most other scholars that work in this field are doing is showing how these, how literature helps Protestant values become the ones that we consider to be secular values. And I was, not interested in writing about that. I wanted to look at literature that made, that sort of bristled against Western secularism. I wasn't interested in literature um, that made claims of belonging on, um, on assimilation. I wasn't interested in books about tolerance. I wasn't interested in insider memoirs. I wanted to look at literature uh, that exposed the workings of Western secularism, um, particularly Um, thinking about it in terms of 
the secular laws and surveillance practices that targeted uh, Muslim and Arab populations. And so that is how I came to work on the fiction and art that's in this book. That's really fascinating. And yes, I, de- I definitely remember those, uh, those images that you're, you're talking about. I, that's a very, it's a very striking uh, image, that, that poster. Um, so you, you kind of started to tackle this a little bit, um, but one of, the, one of the kind of main threads through the book is this, this kind of idea or thesis that, that modern secularism is at odds with Islam in some way. Um, you start to kind of tackle this uh, uh, through through basically these case studies, um, but to kind of set us up, how how do secular ideologies and contemporary ori- Orientalism intersect in your project? Because I think this this is probably one of the the keys to understanding a lot of this uh, literature and art. Um, I guess what do, what do these categories mean in your project? I think, um, first of all, I see this all the time. I'm seeing this in debates about uh, the Supreme Court uh, justice nominee right now is um, that secularism, we imagine it as neutral and abstract, that it's just religion free public spaces and governance, um, that it's sort of marching us forward towards this perfect progressive civilization. Um, But what secularism does is create this binary between rational and irrational, uh, between progress and traditionalism. And secularism, in fact, tells us what religion should be and how it should be practiced properly under secularism. And the reason Islam has become so important in these discourses of secularism um, is because Islam is represented in these Western discourses as anti-modern, anti-secular, just antithetical to secularism and and sort of liberal democratic governance generally. So you can't talk about secularism in the West without talking about Islam. And all of the policies and laws that I was talking about before in Switzerland, in France, in Canada, the United States, and there's so many more examples that I could give you, um, really set up this uh, this conflict between Islam and sort of the ideals of, of Western liberal secularism, which is to say uh, Islam is portrayed as being um, as being less civilizational, is not being invested in human rights or in women's rights. Um, and this is uh, and, and, and this this is one of the reasons that um, I was so interested in looking at the books that I look at because they don't set up, they refuse this binary between secularism and Islam entirely. They refuse this binary between secularism and religion. And they refuse the idea that Western secularity has a monopoly on the values of religious freedom or bodily sovereignty or individual rights or gender equality, sexual liberation, and so on. Um, And it, they demonstrate how these supposedly secular values often manifest in really exclusionary ways in actual spaces. Because what secularism does is it sanctions certain kinds of religious expression and embodiment while discounting others, including Islam, as just irreconcilable to secular governance. Um, and this, I would, and Islam is the is sort of the the case studies that I'm that I'm looking at. But this has been true of uh, of 
a number of ways of thinking of a number of ways that secular sort of excludes populations, including, and I think this is a really um, sort of rich area for scholarship, native native studies, the way that secularism, for example, uh, has us thinking about and conceptualizing private property in really specific ways or something like corporate personhood, ways that refuse other human and communal forms of understanding our relationship to land, for example. Um, so Islam and secularism, specific, in, in a, since 9-11, but 9-11 I don't think is necessarily the watershed moment that um, our media makes it out to be. Certainly Muslims and Arabs um, were being surveilled prior to 9-11, but certainly since 9-11, this what Samuel Huntington called this clash of civilizations has really come to the forefront of our political rhetoric. And, and we see that in all sorts of ways, like Trump's Muslim band or Newt Gingrich thinking that people need to take like Sharia tests um, and things like that. So, so it becomes um, sort of essential to talk about Islam when you're talking about secular governance in the West. Um, something else that I really appreciate, uh, appreciate about the book um, is your kind of attention to categories um, and classification and these kind of things. And um, these these two categories of Arab and Muslim, of course, play the central role throughout. Um, and you kind of place these within the context of the racialization of Muslims and state power and surveillance, like you were mentioning. And then, of course, this, this secular and religious dichotomy uh, but you put you push back against some sort of centralizing discourse about Arab or Muslim as a as a category. Um, but I'd love to hear more about how you think we should approach these labels analytically when when thinking about cultural production. So, for example, could we think of a quote unquote Muslim literature uh, as a genre or a collective? Um, you know, how do you how do you probe or or tackle these these kind of questions in your book. I think I think it's really important that my book is specifically about Arab transnational art and literature. Um, and this, I, I talk a lot about the really particular history of racialization of Arabs in the United States. But because of how Islam is raced in the U.S. and Europe, it, it's it, even though some of the authors and artists that I'm talking about are not Muslim authors and artists, Islam becomes essential and over in this overlapping category that I need to talk about as well. Um, so I talk about the racing of Islam as non-white. And Eric Love writes about this. About He writes about Muslims becoming a racial category. And Nori Ghana writes about what he calls the Islamifying, which is a difficult word to say, of Arab Americans. So that it sort of works in these two ways. Um, Islam becomes a raised category and Arabs become sort of Islamified. And these categories get collapsed and they become monolithic. So what I wanted to do in my book was really pay particular attention to, to keeping categories distinct and showing how they overlap and also showing how things like policy and law and surveillance force these overlappings. So, for example, after 9-11, um, the Arab and Muslim category become even more collapsed into a monolith that needs to be 
policed. And I think um, I'm, I would call myself as, as right, I would call myself someone who's in the field of Arab American studies, but also in the field of Muslim American studies. And I would understand these categories as having something to do with each other and intersecting, but not being identical. And I think um, Moja Kaf, who is one of the authors that I write about in the book, she writes really beautifully about the idea of Muslim American literature. And she finds its roots in the Black Muslim tradition in the United States. So even in thinking about something like where these traditions emerge from. So if you're thinking about the Arab American literary tradition, you're thinking about the great wave of immigration that came from the 1880s through the 1920s from what from greater Syria. Um, and, you know, it, it follows this very different trajectory. It's the New York Pen League. It's um, the mid-century writers, it's the anthologies that were gathered um, together in the 1980s and 1990s that were really important to this category of Arab American literature. Muslim American literature has this really different trajectory. And um, Moja Kaf and Sylvia Chan Malik and others sort of root that trajectory um, in the Middle Passage. Um, and they find its beginnings um, in the, uh, the transatlantic slave trade. And so I think it's really important to keep these uh, histories in mind, that they have something to do with each other, but that we have to respect them as these distinct histories um, that are imbued with different meaning and context. And I think it's really important um, to think of that specifically about the relationship between sort of Black Muslim identity and history in the United States and immigrant Muslim uh, history and tradition in the United States and the sort of relationship that these have to do with each other. Yeah, and I think you you do this really well. And um, anybody working on, uh, you know, Muslims and popular culture or Arab Americans and popular culture, I think... um, I think this is now required reading it. You think you really do an excellent job of parsing out, um, you know, ways of thinking about the, the intersections of these two categories, but then also where they, uh, they line up with different trajectories. So it's, uh, you do a, do a wonderful job. And, um, so you, you begin, um, the kind of case study, so to speak, uh, with, uh, Leila Lalami and Rawi Hajj. Um, and, so, so some of these, these some of these figures might not be uh, well known to to a lot of listeners. So can can you start by telling us a little bit about uh, who these authors are and and their novels? Um, if for these two, you you use them to start thinking about questions of um, humanity and being human. So what what do they tell us about being human, and um, how might they help us think about uh, you know secular categories uh, or definitions of of human rights? Um, so Leila Lalami is a Moroccan author who um, sometimes resides in the United States and writes in English. So I include her in this book and I, and I write about sort of the reasons why I find her appropriate to include. Um, and she's written a number of books, including the Moore's account, which I'll just make for a, a plug for right now, which is about um, the which is takes up the story of the uh, conquistadors to the United States, but from the point of view of an enslaved Moroccan person. Um, and the book that I write about is Hope and Other Dangerous Pursuits, which is about a group of uh, Moroccans who, who make the passage across 
um, the, the Straits of Gibraltar to, to Spain. And the author that I pair her with is uh, Rawi Haj, and he is a Canadian Lebanese author. And here I also, again, sort of make the argument for including them. He also writes in English. Um, his book takes place in Montreal, uh, which is sort of a Montreal and Quebec are sort of the seat of secular secularism laws and movements in Canada. Um, and that what that chapter does is it takes up, and a lot of what my book does is it takes up these seemingly benevolent genres um, and institutions that are secular that we kind of assume are inherently good. So in this chapter, it's the human rights novel. And I sort of question the foundations of those genres and what it is that they're doing. And I look at uh, Lalami and Haj as writers of human rights narratives. They're both writing about migrants, um, Lalami going from Morocco to Spain and Haja's book about a group of migrants in Montreal. And um, I sort of think about human rights discourses and the secular ideologies that underpin them, right? So this idea that, I mean, who's, who doesn't like human rights? We all want human rights. But the idea that these human rights discourses that emerged during the Enlightenment take for granted the human as this individual, um, this autonomous individual that has agency, and the ways in which this conception of the human works to exclude huge populations throughout the history of human rights regimes. So women, children, uh, the mentally ill, um, incarcerated people, enslaved people, colonized people. And so what it... So, you know, asking the question is, what is it about these sort of enlightenment ideals about human rights that still inform how we think about human rights today? Um, how do they, how are they marshaled to exclude certain populations of people? And what I do is look at these books by Lalami and Haj that don't humanize, because a lot of the work that human rights novels generally do is humanize an other for an audience. So I think about this a lot in terms of how my students react to human rights literature. When I ask them, you know, what is it that a human rights novel does or what is this book we're looking at do? And they'll say things like, oh, it, um, you know, it bears witness. It raises my awareness. It humanizes um, the other or the foreigner. And so these books resist that idea that that an author has to humanize somebody who is already human in order for a reader to feel empathy for, for those characters. Um, and then by extension, empathy for the people that it represents. So these, these human rights novels um, don't humanize. They don't accumulate an individual success, but instead, Lalami's in particular ends with this idea of relationality. So none of her characters are particularly successful. Um, so for example, one of her characters is a sex worker and she is not sort of saved from her sex work in Spain. She, uh, is not liberated, uh, through Spanish sort of liberal feminism, but instead her chapter ends with this face-to-face -face encounter with her roommate where they prepare a meal together. Um, the protagonist ends up being deported back to Morocco and working in a tourist shop. And he also does not end up sort of like saved and redeemed. Um, instead, he starts 
to think about how he wants to write for his community of people. So it's very much about not individual success, but this idea of relationality, that we are socially embedded, that we are communal. Um, and so it sort of thwarts this enlightenment um, progression towards individual success um, and autonomy. Um, and it's it's this... Um, Hajj's is particularly uh, interesting to me because his doesn't actually end in relationality in that sense. He his sort of scraps the species of the human altogether, and he becomes a cockroach. Um, and he uh, sort of abandons the idea of individualism, and his character in the end murders somebody and sort of slides down into the sewers to join all the other cockroaches. So he refuses the human altogether. Um, and I think this is really interesting because he writes this human rights novel, which is takes up the stories of all of these um, immigrants in exile, and it shows how they are continually dehumanized. And it also, again, doesn't appeal to us as readers to to sort of humanize and identify with his protagonist. His protagonist is a thief. Um, he's very sexist. He stalks his therapist. He's an altogether sort of uh, repulsive character. Um, and instead, we're meant to sort of identify this this humanist despite his sort of inhumanity. And um, I think that what these two novels are doing is giving us examples of human rights novels that don't pander, that don't sort of demand um, that the characters or the author or the people that they represent are innocent and grateful and somehow um, must make themselves seem deserving of our empathy. Instead, it gives us characters that sort of refuse that trajectory. And that's really unusual in the human rights novel. Um, in the second chapter, you move towards uh, art and museum culture within this kind of intersection of religion and secularity. And you focus on um, the visual practices of Ninar Esper. Um, so how uh, in your study is, is non-Western art treated um, in museum practices and then also in kind of broader discourses on art? Um, who is this, this artist that you you focus on, and how does her work uh, 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 help us in decolonizing museum cultures? So Nina Espar is a is a Lebanese author who um, works in Lebanon and France, and whose work is in uh, her visual art. Um, she does visual and also performance art and installation art. And it, uh, it often sort of uses French and English um, and Arabic, and it uses religious imagery. And what I do, I spend a lot of time in this chapter talking about how museum cultures, again, another institution that I think is, we might think of as being um, relatively benevolent, um, how museum cultures um, sort of essentialize artists and their production and how they how sort of they they shape through exhibition the experience of viewers. So I talk a lot about what it means to be a member of the public viewing this art and how museums work to first of all secularize art, how um, art as Art itself is a secular category as a, as a really important sort of um, moment in art history. 
like the artist as a solitary genius, how we experience art as transcendent through just the experience of art itself, that these are really important moments um, in sort of secular art history and how museums sort of uh, sort of make decisions um, about which art is religious and which artists are represented as being artists that produce religious art. So I talk about exhibits, for example, that include, um, you know, a wide variety of artists. I, I talk about specific exhibits that frame artists from um, the Middle East or uh, Arab American artists as being distinctly as Muslim artists, even when their art has nothing to do um, or very little to do with Islam or is about something else entirely. Um, and I also talk about how museums, the, the sort of history of museums considering themselves as sort of state stewards of sacred or religious art. So I tie this way in which Arab um, artists are Arab and, and a lot of other artists are um, sort of essentialized um, and, and sort of reductively exhibited to this history of museums in the United States and elsewhere um, seeing themselves as stewards, for example, of native art for deciding how to, that they must like protect, protect and preserve art um, from the people who produce it and who may want to utilize it in ways that don't have to do with displaying it in a museum, right? So thinking about like how is sacred art displayed in our museum, in our museums, like how is something like native art displayed? Um, what does it mean to um, consider yourself a steward or protector of somebody else's art and tradition to protect it essentially from the people who make it. And I also talk about what it means to decolonize a museum. So what does it mean to acknowledge these histories of colonialism and the theft of art um, and the refusal to return art? And I tie that to different exhibitions and the way that they present um, artists specifically in the United States. And when I talk about Nina Espar, um, the exhibit that I begin with is one that was actually in Greece. Um, I was called A World Not Ours. And um, I talk about the ways in which artists like Nina Espar defy these categorizations of being secular or religious. So she uses religious imagery in her art but it isn't in this way in which she's sort of translating it for a non-religious audience. And it isn't meant to secularize religious imagery. Like she uses sacred imagery in a way that is, that is neither wholly secular or wholly religious. And so it sort of blurs these binaries. And I talk about some of the ways that she does that, for example, the way like she does recitations um, that she calls the 99 names. Um, I talk about one of her exhibits that's called torso too and it's this sort of glimmering um these huge metal necklaces they're rendered in gold that are the names of uh u.s and british and israeli and french military operations in the middle east they have these really beautiful names like rain of fire and pillar of cloud um and how she sort of hangs these together as as jewelry or as trophies she uses this sort of imagery to sort of help us think about 
um, the violence of these names and how it is not narrated in the United States or Britain or France is Israel, but instead these are told of stories of liberation and righteous occupations. So I would say that what Nina Espar's work does is she pushes back against this interest in creating cross-cultural understanding, right, between the secular West and Islam or um, the ways that the Middle East is sort of represented uncritically or is essentialized, right? So her exhibitions attempt to um, resist this idea of multiculturalism um, and, again, resist humanizing or translating the Arab world or the Middle East for Western publics. So she sort of challenges um, all of these traditional modes of, of exhibition through her work. So you moved from uh, the museum uh, back to literature, and uh, you, you brought up Mojakov uh, earlier. Um, but in the third chapter, you focus specifically on her, her uh, novel, The Girl in the Tangerine Scarf, uh, which maybe uh, more, more listeners are familiar with the, the story. It's a very well-known book, of course. Um, and you, you kind of use it as a, a moment to think about um, constructing a feminist praxis um, you know, caught in the middle or between these secular and religious formations. Um, so can, can you just kind of uh, introduce us briefly to, to uh, the, the, the narrative in the novel? Um, and then why did you feel this was uh, particularly helpful in thinking about this, this kind of intersection of Islam and liberal uh, secularism? Um, and then in, uh, in this novel, uh, what role does gender play in that? Well, Moshe Koff um, is a Syrian-American author. She has written numerous books of poetry. Uh, I write about the girl in the Tangerine Scarf, which is about um, a young Syrian girl and her family, and she's growing up in Indiana, and it's a coming-of-age story. Um, so it's, you know, she's growing up uh, in a devout family. She grows up in a religious Muslim family, and it takes her through high school and college and marriage Uh, and divorce, and um, sort of through her career. And one of the things I think that's really interesting about this book is that it's a coming-of-age story that doesn't end in this this sort of trajectory of um, someone sort of rejecting the, uh, you know, the traditions that they come from and and embarking um, on, you know, sort of... sort of assimilating into the culture. And it takes a very different turn. Um, And I think a lot of what the book pushes against is this this idea in Western feminism that women's rights can only emerge from the secular context, Um, that women in Islam are inherently oppressed that's something like the veil, which is a, a, a trope in the novel about, you know, there's a lot of moments when Kadra veils or unveils. She speaks a lot about what it means, veiling means to her in the novel, this Kadra being the protagonist. Um, and so this book really pushes against this idea that Muslim women don't have agency, um, that they that they aren't, um, that they don't have rights within Islam and that Islam is inherently oppressive to women. One of the other interesting things that this book does is it finds within the secular context a way for Kadra to enact her rights 
So in the book, it is a wife-initiated divorce, and she has an abortion in the book, and how she can enact these rights in this secular context, but she understands them not as being sort of available to her because she's in the United States and those are rights that the United States sort of grants her, but she understands that she should have access to these rights through her Islamic theology. So she understands her ability to have these rights and her sort of um, desire to enact these rights as being really rooted in her understanding of Islam and the Quran. Um, And so when the book ends, um, she's gotten a divorce. She's gotten, she's, she's had an abortion, which she sort of understands theologically and she's embarked on a career. And so it's, it ends in one way. It ends as sort of a, you, a way that you might imagine a trajectory of a novel of sort of a woman finding herself or finding liberation. But what this novel does that is so different is it, it finds those rights and she is able to sort of live her life by understanding herself relationally to her community and understanding that the secular context is one way in which she can enact not only her rights, but like understand herself as belonging to the Ummah, this sort of transnational, international, global community um, of Muslims. Of, and and so it doesn't have that sort of wrap up that the coming of age novel usually has. Um, you, you also look at uh, questions of uh, sexual identity um, within secular discourses and specifically uh, LGBTQ rights. Um, and you look at um, the author, uh, Rabi Alamadine, um, in his book, uh, Kool-Aid's The Art of War, um, maybe I wasn't familiar with this, wor- this work, so maybe other listeners won't either, but um, th- I found this really interesting also because it kind of uh, takes place in this kind of pre-9-11 context, which, um, you know, in a kind of different type of cultural war uh, in a sense. So um, can, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Madin and his, his novel? Um, and then how, to, how does his work help us interrogate uh, LGBTQ identities, American literature, representation of, of Arabs and Muslims? Um, you, you do a lot in this chapter, of course, but uh, maybe you can kind of help us think about this. Um, this is Alamadine's weirdest book. So it's so strange. I think you probably got that from reading the chapter. It is such a strange book. It is so hard to describe. It is not chronological. It happens in these episodes that sort of move weirdly through time and space. So I'll say that um, it is the Alamedine's a a Lebanese writer. He he writes in English. Um, And this book is both about the Lebanese civil war. So parts of it take place in Lebanon. And it is also about the AIDS epidemic in the United States. Um, and the episodes are, are just so chaotic, which is part of, you know, what I think uh, the book is doing. But I would say, you know, for, for those of you not ready for a really <laughs> strange and chaotic read, go read one of his other books. They're excellent. Um, but what he, 
what I what I talk about in this book, and and I talk a lot about um, sort of the the way that he juxtaposes um, the Lebanese civil war with the AIDS epidemic. But I'll I'll talk more about what he does with his um, his gay characters, and they are almost entirely um, gay. It's a novel almost entirely about gay men, so it's a sort of gendered in that sense, um, and how he talks about sort of the AIDS epidemic because. One of the things that um, this novel points to is the way that, for example, the West is seen as a place where sort of the the sole location for sexual liberation and GLBT rights and how this is sort of foundationally not the case. I mentioned the Supreme Court at the beginning of this conversation. And so it is evident that that, that this sort of secular governance doesn't... uh, deliver rights and the in sort of the ways that it promises to and yet it's sort of seen as um the only the only place for sort of queer liberation that this that sec- that the secular place the secular is the only sort of space and source for this and kool-aids which is the title of the book um and of course refers to could refer to so many things kool-aid um really questions the presumption that secularity, um, uh, this presumption of secularity that queer people can only truly be free under secular conditions um, because it, it making queerness into the secular concept. And it does this by having a multitude of different characters. It's difficult to even talk about a protagonist in this book, but it does it by having a multitude of characters that have varying degrees of faith in different religions. And it also does it by talking about the AIDS epidemic um, and how the U.S. government, um, its refusal to address this epidemic uh, just charted the course of death and suffering in the United States for um, gay and and homeless and addicted populations in the United States. Um, and so uh, it, and it ties this neglect of um, AIDS patients and populations into into the civil war in Lebanon in really interesting ways. And it also talks about, and and it sort of points to the ways that Western um, secularity or the idea that you can only have GLBT rights under uh, a really particular kind of secular regime is used for pinkwashing, meaning it's used to paint um, the Middle East and Islam as being also like the Kafka chapter where I talked about Islam being sort of represented as inherently um, anti-feminist as being inherently homophobic. And uh, there's a lot of scholars that talk about the way that this is used. Um, Jess Beer Pure talks about the way pinkwashing is used um, in relationship to Israel, which is not in this book, but it is certainly um, one way to think about like, what is this book doing? Um, thinking about the ways in which it points to how secularism is marshaled to exclude not only these Arab and Muslim populations in the United States, but GLBT people as well. Um, in the in the final chapter, you move to uh, uh, Muslim art uh, in a um, post nine eleven context, um, and you you think about how. Um, secularism shapes 
kind of dominant visual registers in, in, in many ways. Um, so you, you look at a couple artists and how they respond to these, these kind of perceived limits. So what, what do um, the artists that you focus on, what do, what do they have to say about uh, the, the social and political conditions of uh, the war on terror and state surveillance and the regulation and policing of, of communities? Uh, how, do, how does their art push back against some of this? So I talk about two artists, uh, Monir Fatmi uh, and uh, Hassan Alahi. And Hassan Alahi is not Arab. He is a Bangladeshi American artist. Um, his work is really interesting. Um, and I'm going to, I'll start with Monir Fatmi, um, who the, a lot of the work that I talk about in the book has to do specifically um, with representations of, for example, the um, world trade, the skyline of New York um, before uh, 9-11 and with images of sort of suicide bombers um, and thinking about how um, how post 9-11 sort of surveillance and policing worked. And again, I talk a lot about how he uses religious symbols in his art, um, like again, the 99 names um, of Allah and calligraphy and how he doesn't translate them. And I'll say a little bit about the cover of the book. Um, the, the piece on the cover of the book, it's, my book is called Interrogating Secularism, and the piece on the cover is this circular saw, and it's inscribed uh, with quotations from the Quran, and it's beautifully done. My father was a metal worker, and he was so impressed by the just the gorgeous um, steelwork that uh, Fatimi does, but it's also a, a quite an intimidating piece, um, and at first I thought this piece was mainly about power. Or, main, or maybe about how Islam is represented um, specifically in the U.S. As, a, as sort of threatening because these are words, these words from the Quran are inscribed on circular saws. But then I started doing home repair and <laughs> I thought about how the saws that I was using were actually about creation and how you use them in the act of creating and building. And the saws in this piece are set up so they look like they could turn like gears. And so you can sort of imagine if one turns, if one idea turns, if one quotation turns, if these words make a movement, then all of the other gears in the piece would move, right? So they don't actually move, but you can sort of, they're set up in this way that they look not only like saws and like gears, but they, they, they can move. So it's really dynamic. It's about creation and it uses these quotations from the Quran that are specifically about knowledge. And so I think pieces like that um, are ways to challenge the sort of representation in the media of, um, of Islam as inherently threatening and, and terroristic, right? By showing it as dynamic and in the process of creation and by using uh, religious imagery in ways that these, these passages aren't translated. You only know what these passages are if you know what these passages are, right? So it doesn't secularize the, the imagery that he uses. Um, and Hassan Allahi, his piece that I write about in this does something very different. His piece is really interesting. So he was stopped by the, by, he was stopped upon returning to the United States um, after uh, a trip that was post 9-11. And he was interrogated 
And so he decided after this interrogation that he would produce an online diary that's called Tracking Transients. And in this online diary, he would it would just be filled with images from his daily life. So none of the images are of him. They're all of the things that he's doing all day long and a GPS tracker that tracks him all the time. So if you go to Tracking Transients, you will find years worth of images and GPS data that track him. And his idea was, I am going to create this sort of performance digital art piece that uses the that uses like technologies of surveillance. So he uses GPS, which was originally a military application, um, and then is is used in all sorts of ways. So he's going to use this surveillance technology to surveil himself, and then just flood the internet or flood these intelligence agencies with information about himself. So he his his actual like the site shows who has looked at it. So the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, these are all agencies that have accessed his work to kind of see it, um, which is interesting because it's surveillance of his surveillance happening in real time. And one of the things that the piece does is it's really confusing. So I, I mean, I guess I worked on more than one confusing uh, piece in this book. First, Alamedine's book, Kool-Aid's, and then this piece, Tracking Transients, because you can't really figure out uh, necessarily, like, uh, you can't kind of navigate the site. You can't, there's no way to be like, where was he on November 2nd? The site is impossible to navigate. It has huge amounts of information and it aggregates information. So like you can look at um, one picture and it will show urinals from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of days of urinal use, not him using it, but just the urinal, right? Or like food that he's eaten or, um, you know, trips that he's taken or things that he's bought or credit card receipts or things. And it's impossible to track. And so the point of this piece is about this sort of incessant surveillance and using these technologies of surveillance um, to sort of satirically take on these intelligence agencies. And it's really interesting because um, he's using, you know, things like even when you go and look it up, you have to, if you Google it, you're sort of using these technologies that track you while you're looking at the art, right? So all of my movements through his piece are tracked, even as he tracks himself. So it's about the intense scrutiny that sort of um, Muslims um, have been, have endured since 9-11. Um, and then it's also about these sort of digital technologies that we voluntarily use to track ourselves. Yeah. Um, Danielle, there's there's really tons in this book, and um, I hope people will get it because I think it, I think you do communicate to a lot of different disciplines in in really productive ways. Um, but uh, I, I I don't know if there's any final thoughts that um, I want to give the opportunity. If there's anything else you want uh, readers to know or come away with from from the book, I think I think what I want readers to know is that this isn't a wholesale critique on secularism that I'm not saying to um, that none of the authors I think um, can be used to say that uh, secularism um, should not exist and that we should maybe that we should be living under some kind of like religious regime or something. But what that these authors do is point to the ways that secularism doesn't guarantee religious freedom equally to all the people that live under its governance, that live in the state. Um, 
that, for example, stateless people or GLBT people or um, Muslim and Arab and racialized populations of people um, and religious minorities don't have access to things like religious freedom or freedom of movement um, in the same ways uh, that the majority population does. That uh, these are this is about how Western secularism. Um, enables settler colonialism or enables white supremacy or enables discrimination in numerous ways. And so it's it's really about thinking about imagining more just ways of being religious or non-religious or secular and sort of changing our understanding of uh, what it means to be human. So thinking about what are what are different ways and models for us to imagine ourselves in relationship with each other, um, different ways of governing ourselves, different ways of living in community and relating to each other. I think literature and art provide not just critiques, but they give us these really imaginative alternatives to thinking about what it means to be human and how we could be human with each other and how we can be socially embedded and take care of one another. And that is ultimately the, the most important takeaway, I think, from my book. It's a great book. I hope I hope people will uh, pick it up and and check it out and and buy a couple of copies uh, as well. Thank um, you. Yeah. Before um, I let you go, I hope you can tell us a little bit about some of the things you're you're working on now. I uh, I would love to do that. Um. So what I'm working on now is uh, two book projects. Um. Which I mean, the pandemic has really <laughs> challenged me. I had these research trips that were. Planned, and I think you, I think you can uh, understand that. Um, yes. What is working in a pandemic? <laughs> what is working in a pandemic? I have two projects that I started last year that have been stalled by homeschooling children and uh, pandemic living, but that I that I hope to um, sort of take up again. And the first is a is um, comes out of an article in a, a book chapter that I wrote on eco criticism and Arab American literature. And it was about the the article was about water occupation and sort of thinking about how Arab American authors write about water occupation and thinking about connections between um, settler colonialism in Palestine and the United States um, and specifically um, thinking about that through water imagery and the occupation of water and um, sort of wanting to grow this into a book about. Um, eco-criticism and Arab American literature and art. I think that often in terms of environmental studies, there are very particular kinds of categories and canons that we look to as literary scholars to think about environmental studies and to think about um, how we live in the biosphere and what literature can tell us about living differently with it. And there is very little writing about um, how Arab American uh, writers and artists contribute to this and can help us think about things like environmental racism um, and slow violence. That's Rob Nixon's term or thinking about settler colonialism and thinking about environmental justice and thinking about the ways that things like conflict and occupation and invasion and um, neoliberalism contribute to environmental injustice and how these writers and artists give us different, again, just different ways of thinking about being human this time, being human in relationship to the biosphere and the species that we share it with. And the other book project is when I was working on um, with a colleague, uh, Mukti Magram, who is at Rutgers. And it's about 
empathy and literature and how literature can help us, can give us models for empathizing differently. So one of the things I talk a lot about in my chapters on Lalami and Hajj, for example, is how we are often, literature is often called upon to make us empathize with its characters and supposedly like become better humans. Um, and maybe then that will sort of extend into the world and we will, uh, you know, fight for social justice because we read a particular book. And thinking about how that model doesn't necessarily work and how we could think about empathy and literature differently. These sound like uh, wonderful projects and I hope you you get time soon to work on them. Um, well, thanks again, and uh, congrats on this, this wonderful book, Interrogating Secularism. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Danielle Huck about interrogating secularism, race and religion in Arab transnational art and literature, published with Syracuse University Press in 2019. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.